0: And if you'd like to turn in your Bibles, we'll be in Exodus chapter 1, but the words will also be on the screen for us. So we'll be in Exodus chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 16. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they may join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them of whom was named Sherpa and the other one Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter she shall live. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God.
1: So I feel like this has been a really difficult week in the news. Rarely do I read a news story, uh, and it's actually positive news that I'm reading. So uh, a couple stories this week that frankly were really hard for me to read. So the first one, I'm not actually going to name the young woman's name, uh, because I really hope that she comes one day to genuine repentance. But there was a young woman, she was actually from here in Ohio, and uh, if you're familiar with her story, there's quite a bit of mystery that surrounds it, but it appears that after she gave birth to her young daughter, uh, she murdered her daughter basically immediately after her daughter was born. Uh, She ended up being not convicted of murder, but for mishandling uh, a human body. One of the reasons that the prosecution went after her was both a picture and a text that was sent to her mother mere hours uh, after she had supposedly given birth. She went to the gym, and she texted her mother and said, My belly is back. OMG. I am never, ever, ever, ever letting it get like this again. You're about to see me looking freaking better than before. OMG. And that wasn't even the worst story that I read this last week. Another story uh, about Operation Fourth and Goal, if you're familiar with the news headline, but 104 men and women across the state of Ohio were arrested this last week in one of the largest human sex trafficking rings that has ever been busted in Ohio. And then I could keep going on, not only, you know, all of that, which I do believe that was the worst story this week, but then we were remembering the anniversary of September 11th. And at least in my life, at least in the last 18 years, uh, this has been one of the few days that I feel like as a country we genuinely can come together. For those of us who actually, you know, have the memory of September 11th, we can remember what it was like that day and and the fear and the awe and, and how we were actually united but this is the first time in my experience where I saw more than a remembrance and more than a bonding together and more than a grieving together. I saw cynicism, and I saw a refusal to honor the heroism of that day of those who gave their lives to try to save some, but rather this whole idea because of the results that came from September 11th, uh, we cannot honor anyone on this day. There's lots of dark times, There's lots of hardship. And frankly, all of that, that's just on the news. That's nothing to say of the struggles that we ourselves experience. Exhaustion, kids trying to make it uh, in both school and socially, marital conflict, work mistreatment, health issues, loneliness, and I can imagine that the list goes on and on and on. I know that for each and every single one of us, whether we're aware of it or whether we're not, I think that it's fair to say uh, these are dark times, whether it's outside our lives or whether it's inside of our lives. The world that we live in is a hard world, and in the midst of these dark times, I believe that it's normal. In fact, I would go so far as to say I believe that it is even proper for the human heart For those of us who are made in the image of God to ask questions. To ask questions like, why God? Where are you, God? What are you doing? Are you even real? Do you even care? This evening we're going to begin a a new sermon series. We're going to be looking at the book of Exodus. And in many ways, the book of Exodus, it is a book about beginnings, It's the first place, it's the first time in Scripture that God shows up in a unique and in a personal way. Now, before we quickly think, like, okay, I'm glad that He showed up in a unique and personal way, but that was so long ago, is there anything that we can genuinely learn from the book of Exodus? I want us to know this. For the people of God, even back in ancient times, their story is our story, The lessons that they learned about God are lessons that God Himself wants us to learn about Him. And here's, I would say, the biggest theme in the book of Exodus. The God who shows up for the struggling Hebrews is the God who shows up for us in the midst of our struggles. This evening, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 1, uh, looking primarily at verses 1 through 16, verses 1 through 16, and uh, the main thing that I think we're going to walk away with that we need to understand, I'm going to pull it straight from the New Testament, so this is me not coming up with any original language here, but here's what we are to know about God from chapter 1. We're to know this, God works all things together— for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. God works all things together for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. And we're going to unpack that by looking at Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 16, and specifically looking at these two points. We're going to look at evil's plan for your life, and we're going to look at God's plan for your life. Evil's plan and God's plan. Let's go ahead and jump in. Uh, so the very, I'm going to start off with in what may be the harder plan to talk about, but in some ways the less significant plan. So uh, when we read the Book of Exodus, we are not going to be able to escape the reality that there is a such thing as evil. Evil exists. Evil influences men and women and children alike, and evil has an agenda. Evil has a goal for each and every single one of us, just as it did in ancient times and just as it does now. In, in three words, what is evil's plan for your life? What is evil's intention and goal for you? Evil's plan is to destroy you. There is real evil in this world, and it wants to destroy you. Let's talk about that for a second. So, one of the first things, when we and we could call it evil, we could call it sin. We could look at the agents of evil. So, uh, whether that be Satan, sometimes it's me, uh, an agent of evil. Literally, when I do something deliberately wrong, and I know uh, I'm partnering, I'm partnering with evil. We need to know a few things about it. Evil is not creative. Evil is not creative. In many ways, evil—it's a one-trick pony and its job and its intention is to destroy all that God has already made good. We see this all throughout Scripture, Uh, and frankly, I believe that we could see this in our own life. A few different places in Scripture uh, that we see this. Uh, In Genesis 1, we see that God gives His Word to Adam and Eve, and His Word is very good. Uh, His word is meant to give them life, to give them healthy boundaries, and to cause flourishing. But what happens? Evil comes in and says, can you really trust God? Did he really say don't do this? Do you think God really wants what's best for you, or do you think he just doesn't want you to be like him? You see, God intended something for good, for life, for blessing, and evil twists it, perverts it, and distorts it, and it leads to what? What? death. We can see that uh, after sin and death and evil is entered into the story, uh, it gets worse from there. God gave all of mankind a mission, a mission to be fruitful and multiply and fill his whole creation up with fellow image bearers that show God's justice, show God's kindness, show God's love wherever they are present. And the biggest way, in fact, the only uh, ordained way that God says we can be fruitful and multiply at this point in the story is through marriage, is what he has called Adam and Eve to. Marriage was intended for one man and one woman living in a loving, equitable partnership. But very quickly, evil comes into the midst of marriage, and when it does, it becomes perverted. And what was meant to be between one man and one woman, we quickly see becomes between one man and multiple women, and there's this domineering conflict that leads to what? Leads to death. And then even as men and women were supposed to uh, be fruitful and multiply and they would have children, children were meant to be nurtured and nourished and grow up and taught how to use their various unique gifts that God had given them. But very quickly, evil comes into the story and perverts it and twists it. And now sibling relationships, which were meant to be harmonious and reflective of how God uh, relates to one another, we see jealousy, we see competition, and we see vengeful reactions to other siblings, and this leads to death. And all of this just in the first four chapters of Scripture. Evil is very real. Again, it's not creative. It doesn't come up with new ideas on its own. It just takes what God has already made. It takes what God has already called good, then it tries to twist it, It tries to distort it so that its ultimate goal, so that its ultimate end uh, would lead to death, would lead to destruction. Jesus himself in talking about evil and talking about agents of evil and the way that they work, this is exactly how he describes it in John 10.10. Remember this? He says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I come so that they may have life and have life abundantly. You see, we're going to talk more about this when we get to God's plan, but ultimately, God's uh, rules, God's laws, God's plan for you, he wants you to be fruitful and multiply, but evil wants to destroy that. Evil wants to take that away from you, sometimes in subtle, small ways, and sometimes in glaring, incredible ways. Jesus, when he says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, uh, he was very acquainted with the evil one's uh, plan, the evil one's strategy. You see, there's a few places in scripture where we see evil. It's not whispering like he does to Adam and Eve. You know, did God really say that? Man, God's just jealous that if you take of this, you'll be like him. I would say that was a subtle act of evil. There are other times in Scripture where it's not a subtle whisper, but it is a horn blaring. And I think one of the greatest uh, acts of evil, where, where literally the evil one's trying to steal, kill, and destroy, is near the birth of Jesus. We see that there's an evil man who was king over the people, And he himself had succumbed to cynicism, he had succumbed to the voice of evil, and he came up being manipulated by evil itself with this master plan, I'm going to kill every male child that's around. What was evil's intent? To destroy, to kill life. Because at that time, the Savior, the Messiah, the one who would bring redemption to the whole world, was literally ordered to be put to death. Jesus knows that evil's intent is to steal, kill, and destroy because they've been doing this to him since eternity past. Evil's been attempting to thwart God's plan since eternity past, but the good news for us is that God cannot be thwarted. You see, this is the Exodus story. This is the beginning of Exodus. God has made plans to his people in times past. We could look back to Genesis 3, Genesis 15, Genesis 46. But long story short, when we look at the actions and promises that God has made, he has said this I am going to bring redemption to all that evil has tried to take away. Everything that was lost at the fall, I am going to redeem. First, God starts his plan of redemption through a family, and God makes this promise through this family will come the one who will ultimately defeat and destroy evil. And then he says, as this family grows, it will eventually become a people, and from this people will come the one who will put an end to evil itself. And that's where we're at. God brought them to Egypt God brought the people of God to Egypt that they may be fruitful, that they may multiply, that they may become this great nation that God has already promised so that the Messiah may come from the people of God. And evil notices. And what is the first thing that evil does, seeing that God's plan of redemption is coming to fruition? Evil makes the order, work them to death, Turn the people against God, verses 9 and 12. And verse 16 kill the babies, destroy the people, destroy the works of God. Sometimes evil is a subtle whisper, convincing you, persuading you in your heart to do the thing, the very thing you know God doesn't want you to. And sometimes it is a blaring trumpet where the king himself makes an edict kill the children kill the people of God. Evil has a plan for you and for me and for our children and for our people and for our church. Destroy them. Oftentimes, more often than not, I believe in our life. Evil's evil's approach to you and to me, it's going to be subtle. It's going to be the whisper. Take vengeance into your own hands. See how you were just mistreated there? No, 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 no. You can strike back a lot harder than they just did. Get after them. What's one look? Is it really all that bad? Evil will oftentimes whisper to us, but occasionally, occasionally, we see these trumpet blasts. In the first few chapters of of Exodus, in the first few verses of Exodus, when we see that there is real evil and that it has a real plan, I believe that there is an action plan. I believe that there's a strategy we are called to and that the people of God are called to in order to rebel against evil. You see, here's the whole thing. Here's evil's whole point. It tries to get you to believe something that's not true. If I believe that God doesn't love me, if I believe that God doesn't care for me, if I believe that God isn't faithful to His promises, well then what's the point anyways? What's the point of giving Him my allegiance? What's the point of repenting when I know I've done something wrong? What's the point of trying because it doesn't ever actually work out in the end anyway, right? That's what evil would have you believe, cynicism. It would have you succumb to it. It would have you be hopeless. But God, in the first few chapters of Exodus, for the first readers of this book, God has a message for His people. Believe. Believe that God is good. Believe that even in these dark times, Believe that even in these dark circumstances, we may not know how God is working or what He's doing, but we believe that He is good. We believe that He is the holy God, and we believe that He is working all things for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. And the other thing that we learn in the book of Exodus is this— You, if you have faith in God, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of your sins and seek to follow after him, you uniquely and individually have been called according to God's purpose. And he has said this, he has said that he has a plan for your life. What is God's plan for your life? God's plan is this. God would see you be fruitful And multiply. Let me unpack that. So, uh, I believe one of the things that we see here in Exodus chapter 1 is oftentimes God's good in our life and God's good intentions for us today. uh, Just as evil at times can be subtle and at times evil can blare, I think God, for the most part, when we see Him the way we see Him act in Scripture, I believe that for the most part, God's good in our lives is often subtle. You see, here in the story, we know that the people of God are going under incredible hardship and persecution. So we're not given all the details of what it would have looked like, but you can just imagine, can't you? Hot Egyptian sun, you have wheat that you're trying to make these clay bricks out of, and you're trying to build cities and temples for the Egyptians, and they're probably underfeeding them. They're probably uh, giving them less water than they need. Uh, If we've watched the old movies like uh, The Ten Commandments or The Prince of Egypt, there's probably whips and chains, and it's probably a horrible life involved. Not only that, the physical that the people of God are having to endure— But then we're also told that there is literally a state propaganda established by the ruler of the state, Pharaoh, against the people. I'm not going to get into all the Hebrew, but essentially some of the language that is being chosen is exactly that. Hey, distrust the people. Uh, The people, the foreigners who are in our land who weren't welcome in the first place, they're going to become greater and more populous than us, so the only solution that we have is to mistreat them, to be harsh to them. And then the coup de grace, the ultimate worst thing. Uh, they want to be so bad to them. Literally, they, or, they give the order, kill the children, kill the firstborn males of the Egyptians. The people are living under incredible circumstances, incredibly hard circumstances, yet, I believe here in this text, we see the providence of God. We see the hand of God at work. Verse 7 and 12, it's not as big and as loud as Pharaoh's actions and how Pharaoh is hurting the people, but it's there nonetheless. Verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. Historians and theologians, they've looked back on this, and and again, knowing the state propaganda, knowing the state laws, knowing literally the genocide and execution that is being ordered from the top down, theologians look at this and they recognize uh, as the people of God from the Exodus story. Remember, Moses wrote this after the events of Exodus. In some ways, this is hindsight, In some ways, this is an invitation for the people to look back and see, hey, remember how hard that was? Remember how dark it was? Remember how lonely and alone you felt going through all those things? But see, even back then I was with you. Even back then I wanted what was best for you. Even back then I was working to bless you so that you may be a blessing to everyone and that's exactly how we see the story goes. Ultimately, the people of God, who, who as we'll read later uh, in chapter 2 and 3, they will cry out to the God of their forefathers— They'll remember that He made promises of old, saying, hey, listen, I will bless you. I will greatly number you. You will become of the crown jewel over all of my creation, sharing who I am to the world. All of this is yet to come. In the moment, it's hard to see. In the moment, the people of God don't know the blessing that God has in store for them. But just because they don't know doesn't mean God is not moving and God is not working and God is not ultimately bringing redemption to them. We know the rest of the story. God gets them out of Egypt. We know the rest of the story. They keep uh, turning against God even after He is blessing them again and again and again. We know the rest of the story. They become a great nation. The nation gets a king. And from this line of a king will come the one that God promised all the way back in Genesis 3, Jesus. You see, on the one hand, the book of Exodus, it is a story about the beginning of the people of God. It's a story about how God gathered them, how God redeemed them, and how God made the people of God who they are. But in other ways, this story, the book of Exodus, it is a story about Jesus. I wish I was creative, and I wish I had the exegesis skill that some other biblical scholars have, because I would love to take credit for what I'm about to read to you. But the parallels between God's Son, Israel, and Exodus, and God's truer and greater Son, Jesus, in the book of Matthew, uh, they're exceptional. They're, uh, They're unbelievable. Let me just read this to you. Just as Israel left Egypt and came to the Red Sea, Matthew immediately follows the account of Jesus' return from Egypt with his coming to the Jordan for baptism. Just as Israel emerged from the Red Sea to go into the wilderness, so Jesus went from the waters of baptism into the wilderness. Israel, in turn, experienced absence of food and water, as did Jesus during his first temptation. Israel came to the place where they put the Lord to the test— something that Jesus refused to do in his second temptation. Israel arrived at Mount Sinai, where promptly they turned from the Lord to worship an idol, whereas Jesus, looking on all the kingdoms of the world from a very high mountain, insisted that only the Lord is to be worshiped. In other words, Exodus is the story of the Son of God who stands in need of salvation failing at every point of life and even of privilege. Matthew tells the story of the Son of God who brings salvation, perfect and righteous at every point and in every circumstance and test. Remember when we started this whole thing off, I said in many ways, the Exodus story, it is our story the Exodus stories of the people of God who have this incredible encounter with the living God himself, yet refuse to follow him, yet refuse to believe that he actually wants what's best for them, yet who continue to believe that evil has a better plan, that evil has more to offer, and continually need to be rescued, continually need to be saved by God himself. And can we not see the parallels in our own lives? There are so many times where we believe the seductive, subtle lie that what evil has to offer is better than God himself. C.S. Lewis, he describes it, and I'm going to paraphrase, but uh, we are so concerned with sex and toys and games and all the things in life that we believe can ultimately satisfy us. uh, It's like a child who insists on wanting to play with mud when they have Disneyland waiting for them. Jesus is Disneyland and evil is like the mud. And for some reason, we look to the mud to satisfy us in ways that only Jesus can. And for us, for those of us who have succumbed to evil, the truer and greater Son of God, the truer and greater Israel, he went to the cross. Don't you see? Evil never overcame Jesus but Jesus willingly went to the cross so that He could be the promised one that God uh, has been working through throughout all of redemptive history so that evil can be destroyed. Again, for the ways that we've succumbed to evil, for the ways that we've not trusted God, for the ways that we willfully and deliberately partner with evil, because what's the point? Jesus went to the cross he went to the cross so that evil may not have the last word over your life. He went to the cross so that God may have the last word over your life. He went to the cross so that you may be fruitful and you may, be, and you may multiply. He went to the cross so that you can believe that God wants what's best for you. Can you believe that? Can you believe that God works all things for your good if you love him? Can you be thankful for the providence that God has extended over your life? Remember, to the first readers, in many ways, the book of Exodus, it's hindsight. All of these events have already occurred, and years later, Moses is recording them so that the people can remember God's faithfulness so that people can remember even, man, those times where it seemed like God wasn't near and God wasn't working and God didn't care, so that the people can recall and see, oh, he was with me all along. He was caring for me all along. He was guiding for me. He was guiding me all along. I could look at all the really significant hardships in my life, I could look at moves, and I could look at jobs that I lost, and I could look at breakups that I experienced. I could look at all the times back, and I'm only 33, where I thought, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why would you allow this to happen to me? Do you know how painful it is? I can remember looking back at those moments, and I can see, oh my gosh, if it wasn't for those things, for instance, I wouldn't be here right now. I wouldn't have the child and the wife and the family that I have right now and the people in the ministry that God has called us to. Sometimes we're not at the point of hindsight. Sometimes we're still at the place of asking and wondering why. Why, God? And that's okay. He's not afraid of your questions. He's not afraid of your whys. He wants to meet you. He wants to comfort you. He wants you to learn to trust in Him. But can we be thankful? The places that we do have the hindsight places where we can look back at our story and see the way that God has worked. The cross is the greatest example of that, the greatest act of evil in all of history, yet God worked it for good. God worked it for our good, because it is through the cross that we find redemption. How do we land this thing? What are we to walk away with? uh, With our first sermon— Uh, in the book of Exodus. Just as evil has a plan and we are called to believe, we know that God has a plan for us, and that also calls us to believe. I'm going to give you three uh, adjectives for what our, our belief should look like. Our belief should be trustful, that even when we can't see God working, we trust that He is good and that He does want what's best for us. And even though we can't understand, we trust and believe that He is working. We have expectant belief that even when we can't imagine redemption coming from any given situation, and I know we've all experienced them at different times, we trust Him. We expect Him to work. We expect Him to bring redemption because He's the God who redeems stories. And then finally, our belief should be patient. Patient because we cannot see down the corridors of our own mere life, let alone the corridors of history. Our belief should be patient, and we should be able to wait on the Lord to bring about His redemption, even in the darkest times. And again, we can do this We can do this because it is true indeed that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, for those who have been called according to his purpose. And if you love and trust Jesus, you have been called according to God's purpose. Let's pray.